0: We want to lift up the name of your son this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us. We pray that you would come and we thank you for inhabiting the praises of your people. And we ask God that you would mightily strengthen our hearts to draw near to you. And Father, in our feeble, broken, um, even sometimes half-hearted attempts, we, we come and we want to draw near to you and we disclaim the promise of your, of your word that says that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And so, Father, as much as we know how, we just want to say that that's why we're here this morning, is we want to be near to you, and we ask that your presence would change us, that your word would change us from the inside out, God. Make us like you, Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, good morning. If you've got your Bibles, grab them, go to John chapter 13. God's good, amen? He's good. Um, quite a few verses here this morning. Uh, I told you last week we skipped a couple chapters in our, our Bible reading plan in Genesis and jumped in to what's known as the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, it's a very rich, dense uh, portion of Scripture. These chapters we're going to be looking at up through Easter. Um, for the sake of time this morning, I'm just going to read uh, verses 1 through 12, but we will wander beyond that in John chapter 13. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, But afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Let's pray one more time. God, thanks this morning for your word. Thank you for the the promises. Thank you for the the call that is in this passage that you invite us into this morning. Um, Help us to receive it, God. Once again, Lord, in all of our prayers, it's, it's always the same. We look to you and we say, hallowed be your name, and help, just help us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this is, as I already mentioned, a, passion, or, I'm sorry, a, a passage of Scripture um, that begins a new section in the book of John known as the Upper Room Discourse. Now, this is a little bit technical, but I, I want to jump right into this because it matters. Um, because it's in stark contrast with what John has been doing up to this point in his gospel. Dorothy, if you can throw that that outline of the book of John up there, please. Um, John's gospel is divided uh, into a couple different sections. Um, in verses chapter one, verses one through eighteen, you have a prologue. If you jump to the end, chapter twenty one, verses one through twenty five, which is all of chapter twenty one, is this little epilogue, or, or kind of like P.S. at the end of the at the end of the letter. And then John's book is divided. Um, very distinctly into kind of two sections. And this is a very, um, this outline is not at all original with me. Most scholars, uh, commentaries, different things outline the book of John this way. It's very distinct. John wants us to see it, okay? Um, but uh, in, after the prologue in chapter 1, verse 19, through the end of chapter 12, you have what's called the book of signs. Now, the book of signs, uh, John is very intentional about um, Telling these stories of these seven signs, these seven miracles that Jesus did—you um, know—he starting with the the turning of the water into wine at the wedding at Cana, and then kind of culminating in the, the last sign, which is where he raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay, uh, but then um, that's chapter eleven, and you come to chapter twelve, and then verse or chapter thirteen begins kind of a a new section. Uh, uh, within, the, uh, uh, within the book known as the Book of Passion. And it's um, this section where we're now focused on the crucifixion and, um, and primarily in John, the thing that's unique about John compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke is that uh, there's this section here known as the Upper Room Discourse in chapters 13 through 17. It's pretty much all unique material to John. And there's 21 chapters in the book of John. He's going to take five chapters, so almost a quarter of the book, Almost a quarter of his book is spent on just a few hours that Jesus spent with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. Now you can tell the emphasis of an author by how much time he spends on something, or you can tell the emphasis of a movie by how much time they spend on something. John spends um, what would seem like an inordinate amount of time on just a few hours of Jesus' life here in in this upper room, Discourse And like I said, comparing the two books, um, as it's put there in John, the first is all about these seven signs, and the point of the seven signs is that Jesus was undeniably the Son of God, God in the flesh, undeniable divinity. But then what we see here in the beginning of chapter 13 and on through these chapters is in the same way that the first, the first book was Undeniable Divinity, the second half is Unbelievable Humility. Unbelievable Humility. And over the next several weeks, again, we're, we're going to be studying these chapters, it's rich, it's dense, but it's, it's important to remember that this is all one conversation with Jesus, with his disciples, just a few hours before he's arrested and betrayed and, and crucified. And the thing that we're going to be looking at this morning, but also over the next several weeks as we're in these, these chapters together um, as a local church, is that if I had to sum it up, I would say that in these chapters, Jesus calls us to an intimacy and a fellowship, a communion with him, that quite frankly will make you uncomfortable. It'll make you a little bit uncomfortable. John Calvin said of this section of the Upper Room Discourse that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see the passion and what Jesus, and Jesus shows us his body, but in John, he shows us his soul. Jesus shares his heart with his disciples, and John shares that with us as his disciples. And he invites us into a fellowship with him that will just make us a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know if you guys have that friend, or maybe you are that friend, that tends to overstay their welcome. You know, we we, we like to have fellowship. Like, we like to have people over for dinner. You know what I mean? And it's good, but then it's like, you know the old social cue. Oh, well, it's getting kind of late. And, you know, whether they're at your house or, or maybe you're at their house and, or, or whatever it is, but, you know, you give those social cues. Like, okay, this has been good. It's been great. Enjoyed it. But now it's time to, time to go back to our safe quarters where it's just us and our immediate family. You know, not... And, and hear me here. Jesus is not necessarily socially awkward in a weird way. But what happens in these chapters uh, if I could use this picture, is that we're invited to Jesus' table, and we're kind of ready to stand up and go, but Jesus says, no, 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 you got to stay. And then we're ready to go again. He says, no, 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 just, just sit. Just, just be with me. This is what these chapters are about. And, and folks, as Christians, as disciples, if, if we miss this, we miss everything. In a couple chapters, if I could just jump ahead and again give a brief overview of this entire section. you know in John chapter 15, Jesus is going to he's going to say the same thing, this intimate relationship that he's going to keep talking about, uh, just over and over in different ways. In John chapter 15, he's going to use this very famous um, metaphor of the vine and the branches. And the reason I say that this is of the utmost importance and and that if we miss this intimate relationship that Jesus is calling us to, that we miss everything, is because in chapter 15, as we'll see, Jesus says, apart from me, apart from abiding in me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. We can do nothing apart from abiding in him. And again, once we get to that section, we'll see it's just That's just the word, the language that he uses in that place to speak of what he's calling us to. And I think this is important because I think many of us think that that we're the ones that want intimacy with God, but that God is somehow hiding from us. Or that Jesus is somehow playing games. Or that God's playing this weird game of hide-and-seek with us and kind of like teasing us. But I'm telling you, that's not the case. Jesus gave us all of himself himself. He poured himself out unto death for us. And he invites us into this fellowship, not just on Sunday mornings, not just at small church, not just when you're doing your devotions, but all day, every day, he wants to be your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And And we settle for less. And I, as your pastor, as uh, just a member here at Mercy Hill Church, I don't want us to settle for less, folks. I don't want us to settle for less than all that Jesus came to give. And hear me, I know justification, sanctification, glorification, like true, perfect fellowship is coming one day in a way that, that we can't even imagine, that I has not seen, nor is ear he heard, nor is mine conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. But I'm telling you that there is a fellowship and an intimacy and a communion with Christ right now in this world that most of us, most of us lack And it is the reason why our hearts are continually unsatisfied. It is the reason why we are addicted. It is the reason why, addicted to what? To anything. Listen, I don't care if you're addicted to cocaine or or alcohol or tobacco or to binge watching Netflix. The issue is the same. The issue is that you are looking for something to satisfy your soul. And it is Jesus. And I don't want us to miss this. And I want this for my own life. I want to learn what it means to abide in him, to not leave him. Every moment of every day to hide ourselves in him. That's what this section is about. Let's jump in here in verse 1, chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and again, if, we, if we'd been reading the book of John, you would have seen several instances where throughout the book of John, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. They come to take him and make him king by force after he feeds the 5,000 with the loaves and fishes. They're like, man, this guy would make a great king, like world hunger totally solved right now. And, but he doesn't let them because his hour had not yet come. But now his hour has come. The hour of the passion, the hour of his passion, the hour of the cross. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And, and this is... These first couple verses, again, it almost serves as another little bit of an introduction or, or, uh, or prologue to this new section of the book, is that everything is framed within Jesus' relationship to the Father and that communion with the Father, but he's calling us into that communion. He's, he's calling us into this fellowship. In fact, let, let me just show you this, ju- jump ahead to chapter 17, which is the last chapter that we'll look at in this section on Easter Sunday. But in John chapter 17... Uh, it's what is known as traditionally as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And we don't have time, obviously, to go into all this now, but the, look at the last couple verses, the very last thing that he prays. The disciples are listening to him pray to the Father as he's getting ready to go to the cross. Chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory That you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Again, from beginning to end, Jesus calling us into this communion with the Father. All that he's about to do, it is framed, John frames it. Within the context of love, that this is what love is. End of verse 1, he loved them to the end. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Not just very quickly, again, just kind of observing something from the text here, throughout Chapter 13, if you've been reading this this past week, um, John inserts these little parenthetical clauses about as Jesus is pouring out his life and, and serving his disciples about Judas, who's a part of this, who, who in some ways receives outwardly, though never really received into his heart, all that Jesus was doing for him. And, and, he, and John keeps coming back to this. We just read one in verse 2. If you'll jump down to verse 11. It says, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. In verse 18, it says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate his bread has lifted his heel against me. Down in verses 28 through 30. Now no one at the table knew why he said this. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Now, so again, I'm just pointing out that in, in the midst of all that John is trying to communicate here, and Jesus calling us into this intimacy, it's it's very possible. And I know this is a heavy statement, but to in a sense be like Judas. Where we're we're right there. We're, we're right there. Ju- Judas is going to have his physical feet washed by the Son of God. Yet his heart is going to remain unchanged. It's possible to be in church, to be around God's people. To know when to lift your hands during the songs. And to not have your heart changed by him. Verse 3 Jesus, here's what he knew going into this. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. He knew where he came from, he knew where he was going, and he knew that he had all authority. That's what that first part means in verse 3 knowing that the Father had given all authority into his hands. What do we do with our authority? When we have authority, we tend to lord it over people. We tend to boss people around. We tend to uh, tell people what to do, okay? Jesus has all this authority, knew that he came from God, and is now going back to God, and yet he's going to serve. Again, it's a contrast, undeniable divinity, yet unbelievable humility that Jesus is is going to display there's also another little clue here it's kind of a technical clue but again just driving home this point i want to show you from the text where where i'm getting this from Um, but there's this little phrase in the greek prostan theon okay and it literally is the idea of being face to face with god in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and then it says, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That little phrase, the Word was with God, it's theon. It's the idea of being face-to-face with God. Intimate fellowship, eye contact with God. Okay? It's the same little phrase that's used here in verse 3, when it says, Jesus, knowing uh, that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. Prostan Theon. He knew where he came from, and he knew where he was going. And again, the point being is that this is the one, that he, he is God in the flesh, he is very God of very God, that um, he's also the Father's only begotten special son, and that face-to-face communion that he had with the Father, he came to give to us. He came to give to us. And so knowing that he has all this authority, and unlike us, not bossing people around, instead, verse 4, he gets up, he rises from supper, he laid aside the outer garment, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Um, there's a passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, another very famous passage of scriptures known as the kenosis passage. Uh, kenosis comes from the Greek word for emptied that Paul uses here. Let me just read it. I'm sure you've heard it before. Paul says, "...have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant." Being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think Sinclair Ferguson puts that passage up against this passage in John 13, and he says that, what Paul points out theologically in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus acts out symbolically here in John chapter 13. The level of humility that's displayed here is a little bit hard for us to wrap our minds around because we, we mainly because we wear shoes and not open-toed sandals. Um, and uh, walking around in that day on the dirt road with open-toed sandals, you would Get dirty feet, obviously. And it was a very menial task. And this is where we don't, we don't really have an apples-to-apples comparison to compare this to. Uh, but this, this task of washing feet was that if there was a slave in the house, uh, they would do it for other people. Or you just did it yourself. Okay, But you didn't just do it for other people unless you were a slave. And Jesus gets up and shows extreme humility here. Uh, it's, I don't know, the, the only thing that I could kind of think of that might come close to it is a few years ago, my brother-in-law was helping me do concrete countertops in our kitchen. And uh, and then we got a new sink to go with that. And so as we took the old sink out and we put the new sink in, and it's a little bit gross, but I got I was trying to find something, okay. But we you know how like when you're unhooking the pipe, the drain pipe underneath, and you've got like the trap, you know what I mean, and stuff can kind of get stuck in there. Yeah, it, eh, not so nice stuff. So we're undoing this, and you know as we're taking this apart, you know there's some stuff stuck down in the in the in the drain pipe. And my brother and I both saw it, and he looks at me and he goes, uh, "It's your sink, so I'm gonna let you get that." I'm going to let you get that. And that's what it would be like here. It's your feet. You take care of it. But not Jesus. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Uh, and, And here's where you'll see this dual meaning come in. Now, let me zoom out again for a second, just give a little commentary here, is that, because after we go through these chapters in the Gospel of John, after Easter, we're gonna go into um, the epistle of 1 John, same same writer. And this is what people call Johannian theology, okay? So, um, in different theological grids or schemas or whatever, you would have what's called Pauline theology, Petrine theology, and Johenian theology. So, and again, speaking of the theology of Paul and the way he writes in his letters, Peter and the way he writes in his letters, and John, Johenian theology, and the way he writes in his letters. Now, I say all that because John, in his letters, he, he almost always has kind of a dual meaning going on at the same time, okay? And there's things he wants us to get. Uh, to contrast that and just to help us understand, Paul... Writes kind of like a lawyer. Okay, when Paul, in most of his letters, he uses very technical terms. Many of them are actually legal terms uh, for justification, sanctification, redemption, reconciliation, redemption, forgiveness, adoption, different things. They're very technical words. Okay, that he uses. Paul writes where, and my point is, is that where Paul tends to write as like a lawyer, John writes as an artist. John writes as an artist, and, and again. Paul's, I'm not, in no way does Paul's theology, Peter's theology, and John's theology, they don't contradict, but they just come at it from different angles, talking about the same glorious God. And it's all part of God's inspired word that he's given us. And I say all that because as we enter in here to the actual, uh, what's described for us as the actual foot washing, there's more than one thing going on, okay, is that outwardly, okay, there is an act of humility that no one else wanted to do, okay? That's what they're experiencing. But theologically, um, it's, it's a symbolic act that no one else could do, and that is it's the act of, having, of how we are cleansed from our sins. And let me show you where I'm getting this from in the text. So he gets up, he begins to wash the disciples' feet. I don't think that Peter was necessarily first. It's just the idea that I, I, I think he probably did a few others first, and they just sat there in kind of awkward silence, not knowing what to do. But verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, and the emphasis here is on you and my, you wash my, my feet? And Jesus answered him. And here's where some of the dual meaning begins to come in. He says, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And he's not just speaking of after he gets done washing his feet. He's speaking of after the cross, after the resurrection, because this is a picture of our redemption and all that he was going to accomplish for us on the cross. And Peter just says to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him again, speaking on a different level than Peter. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me or part with me. So again, I I just said that outwardly there's this cultural act of humility that no one else wanted to do. But theologically, Jesus is doing something um, symbolically that no one else could do. He said, folks, we need washed and cleansed from our sin and there is no one else that was willing to do it there's also but there's especially no one else that could do it apart from Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he gave as our substitute on the cross and rising again for our justification so peter in his typical over the top demonstrative you know way lord not my feet only but also my hands and my head. So you're not going to wash my feet? And she's like, no, I I need to wash your feet or you have no part with it. Well, they're not just my feet, just everything. You know, just, I mean, just dramatic. Drama, 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 drama. That's what you get with Peter a lot of times. So dramatic. And then Jesus says to him, again, and again, listen for the double meaning here, not just of the act he's doing, but of what this act represents. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash. Now, had he just given Peter a bath? No. So he's speaking symbolically here of our redemption, of our forgiveness, how Jesus makes us clean when we trust him. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And then he says, and you, and the you there is plural, speaking to all of them, and you are clean, but not every one of you. What does he mean by that? Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. So he's speaking of, of Judas here. And so you're with me? You follow? You see what's going on, in the dual meeting? Outwardly, there's this act of humility, and Jesus is going to call him to serve in this way. But it's important first that we see the picture that this is. Is that what Jesus is doing is a picture to them and for us of our redemption. That Jesus came to cleanse us from our sin. If you go back and lean into verse 8 a little bit, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Because I, I just want to be as, as explicit here as I possibly can. There is a moment before you know Jesus Christ that you are not his child. You are, as Ephesians 2 says, by nature a child or an object of wrath. The wrath of God is against you. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when you call upon the name of the Lord, and you believe in Jesus alone for salvation, as we always say, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are born again, and you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You are given a bath. You are cleansed. You were dirty in your sin, but Jesus washes you of your sin. Amen? That's what happens. It's amazing. It's one aspect of our redemption. However, and he says that to Peter here. He said, you, you've, you've had a bath. You don't need to wash all of you. You're, you've been born again. You're, you're mine. But not every one of you referring to Judas. But yet in verse 8, as Jesus comes again to now wash their feet, and this is where the picture of what he's doing is just so perfect. Is that even though we have bathed, even though we have been born again, even though we've been washed and our sins are forgiven, and we, are now, we once were not justified, but now we are justified in Christ. What we need to understand is that in this world, every single day, every single day, even though we've been bathed, even though we've been cleansed, we continue to get dirty feet. And not in a way where we're innocent. The dirt here, the grime on our feet... It is sin. It is sin that we continue to kind of uh, rack up, as it were, although we've been bathed, we've been cleansed, we're justified. And as Christians, just as Peter was, what I want us to understand is the necessity of us daily coming to Jesus and again Acknowledging before him, God, I can't believe I did this again, but I, I need you to wash my feet. I sinned again. You know, this is, again, when we jump into the epistle of 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, John's writing to believers. And he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now again, I want to I be clear here, and I don't want to leave with more questions or create more questions than answers. I do not believe that you can lose your salvation. If you've been bathed, if you've been cleansed, it's not possible. But I'm talking in terms of the intimate fellowship, the communion that Jesus is offering here. We need to come daily with all the grime, and all the muck and all the mire and all the sin that gets stuck in our feet walking in this world. And we need God's forgiveness. I've mentioned this before, but you know, in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, it's offered as a paradigm for how we should pray. And, and I don't think the takeaway is that when we pray, we should always just quote these words word for word. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, etc. But it does offer us a paradigm that when we come to prayer, our first priority should be saying, God, hallow your name. Make your name be seen as holy in my life. God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. That should be the priority in prayer, is that God's name is hallowed, that he's seen as the almighty God that he is, and that his kingdom come, his will be done. That should be the priority, not, not our will. But towards the end of the prayer... In the same way that we should always be praying for God's glory and for His kingdom agenda and His, his kingdom purposes, in the same way, at the end of the prayer, He says, "Give us this day, of the, day of the bread and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors." The point being is that when we come to prayer in the same way that we should always be praying for God's glory and for His kingdom, we should also be daily bringing before Him, our recognizing before Him our need for forgiveness. And our need for him to again cleanse us. That we may enter into this this intimacy and this fellowship. Again, just, just get the picture. This is why Jesus is the one that offers us intimacy. He locks eyes with us. And he won't gaze away. But we kind of like awkwardly gaze at the floor and we're not sure what to do. Because if we want intimate fellowship with him, folks, it means that you need to let Jesus into the dirty, grimy, nitty-gritty, dirty feet areas of your life. If you want that fellowship. And that's why we resist it. We resist it because of our own sin. And and this is something, again, it it wasn't planned, but I, I feel like the Holy Spirit has been having us hit on this over the last couple weeks. You'll remember several weeks ago when we were going through Abraham's life. And I put up on the screen that chart between. There's the difference in Galatians chapter four between Sarah and between Hagar, between freedom and between slavery. And my point was that I think that we understand that for salvation, justification, we we enter in, and it's it's only by grace alone through faith alone. But then we immediately revert back to the bondage of works in our sanctification and trying to make ourselves more Christ-like. That's not how it works. We come to Jesus saying, God, I need you, I can't do anything, please save me, and he saves us. And the way that we go forward in intimate fellowship with him, abiding in him, bearing fruit that will last, as Jesus is going to talk about in John chapter 15, is in the same way. We say, Jesus, I can't do anything, I need you to wash my feet again. God, I'm struggling with this same sin, I need your help. And the reason that many of us have problems practically overcoming habitual sins in our life is because we're so busy trying to clean our own feet listen you might be able to wash your own physical feet but you cannot touch your heart you cannot touch your soul that's why he gave us the Holy Spirit he's going to go on again it's, it's all repeat he's saying the same thing different ways with different nuance and, and he takes it forward but he's going to go on in this same passage and talk about he goes I'm not going to leave you as orphans I'm not going to leave you as orphans I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be to be with you. Why? Cuz he's going to be in you and they're going to say, "Lord, he's going to say, "It's better for you that I go." And they're like, "How in the world can it be better for us if you go, Jesus?" He goes, "Because if I don't go, the helper, the Holy Spirit, is not going to come." On every level, Jesus is drawing us into this intimate fellowship with him if we will receive it. And it took great, amazing, shocking, unbelievable humility on his part to do it, yet he was willing. And yet the problem in our relationship with Christ and why most of us do not abide is because we do not reciprocate that humility in being willing to receive it. You cannot set yourself free. If you are in bondage, you are by definition helpless. Back in John chapter 9, uh, the blind man that didn't know really <laughs> kind of what was happening, because one thing I know, I once was blind, but now I see Jesus did that. And he does it for us in salvation and justification, and he's the only one that can do it in our sanctification as we become like him. So Jesus sits down. He resumes his place at the table. Then he says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Jesus was asked one time, what is the greatest commandment? He said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. But he was not asked about what was the second greatest commandment, but he threw it in there anyway as a bonus because, it was, because the two are linked. After saying the number one commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he said, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, the reason I'm bringing this up is because what Jesus is going to go on, we don't have time to go even through all the rest of this chapter this morning. But the point is, is that not only do we need to let Jesus into the nitty-gritty, dirty areas of our life with humility, which requires transparency and honesty, but we also, and here's the one that we just hate, but we also need to do that same thing in front of other believers. And we don't like that. Again, the picture here is not that Jesus went into a separate room. And said, okay, Bartholomew, come on. Washes the feet, sends them back out. Uh, John, come on. Washes the feet, sends them back out. He does this in front of everybody. And and hear me, let me just be specific because I know I'm speaking in pictures here or metaphors. But you've heard me say before, not everybody needs to know everything about your life. But somebody does. Somebody does. And we so badly want to fix ourselves ourselves, first of all, just apart from the power of the Holy Spirit and just in our own effort. But then even if we embrace that one, the one that we really resist is we won't go to anybody else for help. But here's the thing. The person that you need to go to for help, they have dirty feet too. They need help too. They need washed too. And this is where what Jesus does here in calling them to this intimacy with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit, but not just calling them as individuals, but calling them together into this shared experience of having our feet washed and being humbled by His majesty, being willing to cleanse us. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then your Lord and your teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you you do them everybody say do do the obedience of the Christian is always the obedience of faith we do need to believe that this is true but Jesus isn't just calling for that he's saying if you do them do them do what no one else needs to do Totally understandable that my brother-in-law didn't want to reach down and get the nastiness out of my drain pipe in my sink. OK? I don't blame him at all. W- um, but when it comes to serving one another in a way that honors and glorifies Christ, uh, we don't just say, "Brother sister, you deal with it. You take care of it." We get down on our knees. And, and we serve and we humble ourselves. He's going to go on and speak about how this is love. And worship team, you can come up. We're going to close. <clears throat> Verse 31, he says, When he had gone out, after Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. Verse 34, but a new commandment I give to you. Not a suggestion, but a commandment that you love one another. How? What does love look like? Just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, not just a superficial love. Not a love in the way that the world loves. But a love that is marked by profound humility. And that serves without hesitation because we are those who have been served by the greatest being in the universe, Jesus Christ. We're going to take communion this morning. And uh, I don't know, Conrad and I try to plan things sometime, but quite honestly, I'm not a real great planner. Um, and I, I didn't know that we were going to be preaching on this passage when we'd planned to take communion this morning. But I want to be as crystal clear as I possibly can as we come to the Lord's table. Before you come today, okay. if you have bitterness or unforgiveness in your heart towards another person, not just in this church or in this room, but anywhere, I want you to give that to the Lord as much as you know how. I know that you can't necessarily dictate the feelings and the emotions but I want you to, in faith, confess it to the Lord. Say, God, you cleansed me. I have no right to hang on to this anymore. Secondly, if there are people, and this would go hand in hand with having bitterness towards someone, but if there are people that you just avoid, you you avoid them because they just rub you the wrong way. Um, I want you to confess that to the Lord before you come. Jesus was the great light of the world that stepped down into darkness, as John says, throughout his gospel. Um, Polar opposite of what he was is what we are by nature apart from him. He didn't let that stop him. He came near and he humbled himself in the greatest possible way. My prayer for us as a church over the next several weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday on Easter and and beyond that is that the Holy Spirit would do a work in our lives and in our hearts and in our church where we learn to love each other in a way that all men will know that we are his disciples. And I want to be, let me just say this too, because uh, again, sometimes I say things and people always imply, well, what's he he talking about? Is there something going on? I want to tell you something. I'm very proud of us, (laughs) like in a good way, not a sinful way, I don't think. I'm very proud of us in the way that we love each other I see every week, I see wonderful examples of how you in this room love each other and love the world. I really do. But are we perfect? No. And, guys, whatever um, Jesus is offering us here, this intimate fellowship, communion with Him, He's not just offering it to us individually but he's offering it to us together as a local church community. And I want all of us to step into it, but it all starts with, it all starts with what he did. And what we're going to do in just a minute or two as we sing and as we come forward and as we take the bread and as we take the cup, the reason we do that is because it's all about him. And I know that you know that. I know that we know that. But, and it is about receiving what he did for us. But it's also, if we truly receive it by faith, it's about what I said in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That it comes to us so that it can go through us and out of us to others in a way that honors and glorifies him. Amen? Make sense? God is so good. And I don't want us to miss out. I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to waste my life being distracted and numbed with other things that don't satisfy. Amen? I want Jesus. And I want all of him. Um, And all the fellowship and intimacy that he offers. So you guys stand with me. If you're helping serve communion, come down front. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body.